Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivglani. Today we're going to take a look at how medical needs are being met in Ukraine in the midst of the war. Our guide is Dr. Oleg Turkot, a Ukrainian-American who is currently an obstetric anesthesiologist and an assistant professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine at my alma mater, Johns Hopkins Hospital. Dr. Turcotte has worked in Ukraine for many years, and as the war rages, he's been coordinating resources and treating patients. So he's in a position to help us understand what is happening throughout the country, medically speaking. He's also on the board of directors at Kaibeli, an organization that creates healthcare partnerships across borders to improve childbirth safety. And he's a graduate of Ternopil University in Ukraine, uh, where we, all, of course, have many learners learning by osmosis. So, Dr. Jerkov, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Shiv, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be able to talk about some of the work that we're doing and our fantastic partners all over Ukraine. Totally. So let's get started by learning first about you personally. Can you give us a bit of a highlights of your bio? What got you interested in medicine and then specifically anesthesiology? Of course. I was born in Ukraine and we emigrated to the U.S. in 94. I returned to Ukraine in 2004. I got to be a part of their first Orange Revolution, which really changed the way I viewed my responsibility to the country. I graduated high school there, went to medical school there, got married, and there was a lot of promise in the country at that time, but I did not see as many opportunities. So I returned to the US. Here, I did my residency, did my fellowship. I stayed on as an assistant professor with Hopkins and I recently completed one more fellowship in chronic pain medicine. One of the things that I would see when I would compare the way that we were educated in Ukraine to the way that we're educated in the U.S. is here, learners are a lot more active. It's a lot less book memorization. It's a lot more taking care of patients and problem solving. And back in 2016, I had the opportunity to uh, join a medical mission to go to the Balkans. We worked in Serbia, Bosnia, Macedonia, and the whole time I was talking with my mentor at the time saying, you know, this place looks exactly like my hometown. These people look exactly the same. And the same issues that we were dealing with when I was going through my medical school, those are the issues that I'm seeing here today. And he challenged me to get involved and start working on developing a project for Ukraine. In 2018, we had our first meetings, our inaugural mission. And since then, we've expanded all over the country. We had founded the a Modern Obstetric Practice podcast that we do in Ukraine for obstetricians to help improve their care because obstetric anesthesiologists can't really do anything unless our partners are on board. And then we provided on-the-ground training, including assisting them with development of national protocols. And we were really happy with that mission. We had big plans. We were just starting a difficult airway school. And then the war happened. And war brings out, I think, the, the real nature of a lot of people. For us, after the stress and fear subsided, we realized that we made commitments that we're not going to be able to step back from. And I remember on the 28th of February, writing a mass email to all of our partners saying that, you know, no matter what happens, we're here for you and we're going to continue to make it better to the best of our abilities. And that's been kind of the uh, the modus operandi the, the entire time since then. It's been one of the most rewarding things I've done in my life. And as far as why I would become an anesthesiologist, because 
I think that we can function in many places. And if I look back at it now, I became an anesthesiologist to be able to do this specific type of work. Well, it's incredible. I mean, I know our audience has obviously been following the news quite a bit about what's been happening in Ukraine since since it began. And, you know, we have gotten really involved in the osmosis and Elsevier side as much as possible, helping the thousands of people we know who learn by osmosis there. But you've been on the ground. You actually went to Ukraine earlier this year, right after the war started, and you're we're recording this a couple of days before you're about to go back. Can you talk to us a bit about kind of what it's like, what it was like in the early days of the war, treating patients, any memorable moments, um, and then what it's like now, several months later? The war's gone in phases. So initially, everybody was shocked. Nobody understood what in the world was going to happen. When I was crossing the border, it was when the Russians first shelled the nuclear power plant. I remember him being in the car, thinking about the fact that if this thing explodes, likely the areas that I'm going to be going are going to be completely unsafe. And then thinking back to the fact that, well, we made commitments and um, also if it explodes anywhere in Poland and Eastern Europe probably is going to be also reasonably unsafe. So we decided to, to kind of move forward. Initially, there was a bit of community-based organization, meaning every single person was trying to figure out how do we help. The pathways that existed were not designed to supply this large amount of medical training, this large amount of medical aid, or all the other uh, things that were missing. We initially started with helping paramedics have access to tourniquets because the Russians had shot at multiple ambulances. And the paramedics were concerned not only for the safety of the patients who they were going to be out taking care of, but also their own safety. And we were able to donate large amounts of that sort of equipment. Now the situation has changed. There's a lot more equipment on the ground. There's a lot more organization at the both government and local level to be able to receive aid. There's also a significant need for training. So often equipment is easier to provide than to make sure everybody can use every piece of equipment the best way that they can and to really improve patient outcomes. And so that's why the uh, upcoming mission is a training focused mission. There's plenty of equipment and I'm very grateful to all of our partners who helped make it possible. But in addition to that, we want to make sure that if a hospital receives a butterfly ultrasound, they're able to use it for a little bit more than just IV access that they're able to have a development plan to bring in transthoracic echo from an anesthesiologist, to be able to do more nerve blocks and to be able to expand their skills and train the uh, the next steps. I love the train-a-trainer model. And that's been one of the big ways that we've built out the program. So I am internally indebted to all the local champions who work tirelessly, even if I'm here to continue to teach their peers, their colleagues, and future medical students. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so this is a theme that's come up with the Raise Line podcast ever since we started. Obviously, we began this podcast at the beginning of COVID when the whole concept was, how do we not just flatten the curve and educate the public to socially distance, to do wear masks, et cetera, et cetera. But how do we strengthen the healthcare system, which is being overwhelmed, even in very developed, stable, relatively stable countries like the U.S.? Clearly, over many years, you have experienced working in less resource settings and then now war-torn settings. And we've had several guests like the uh, general secretary of the um, 
Doctors Without Borders was on the podcast recently talking about capacity improvements in war-torn countries or, or lower and mid, middle-income countries. So this ability for private companies like I know Butterfly Network, which has donated over two dozen mobile ultrasounds, is really critical. But the question is, how does it also scale? And I think the train-the-trainer model is exactly you know why I think you're going to Ukraine. So can you tell us about the relationship with Butterfly and how it got started and how you're going to, how you could imagine scaling it in addition to training people on the ground? So in probably the most millennial way, it all started with a couple of tweets. I was leaving on the 2nd of March. And when I looked to order butterflies, it would take a, a couple of weeks to, for me to get any sizable amount of equipment. So I was fortunate to have my Twitter friends and, and I reached out to several of them. Emily Sharp, who's very active in the Society of OB Anesthesia, put a blast out through Twitter to see who can donate a probe or send it, send it over in like a day. And the response was amazing. I think we got five probes in less than 24 hours. They were in our hands and we were able to travel with them. From there, we also were reached out to by Butterfly and they offered to help support the project. They sent additional probes over to us. And in addition to that, they helped with uh, fixing some of the difficulties that a lot of the Ukrainian hospitals have. So right now they're working on a Ukrainian translation of the app so that people can actually read what is written and, and have a better utilization of that equipment. They also have waived subscription fees for donated ultrasounds. So that ends up being a significant part of their revenue model. But I think they feel passionate about giving access to people to the appropriate equipment, which is very generous of them. Finally, their price point and uh, capacity is such that overall, it's reasonably affordable. We also donated a couple of full-size obstetric ultrasounds that were many tens of thousands of dollars. If you're looking at something that can be two to three thousand dollars that can be deployed readily and is portable, which which really helps. One of the most recent developments in the past couple of months has been that physicians need to move. And if you have a ultrasound that weighs 50, 60 pounds, lugging that as you're fleeing from a, a rocket attack or a shelling ends up not really being your best priority versus something that you have on your belt. And all of a sudden you're in a basement and you want to assess a child, you can do it. It also brings in interesting capacity. So for example, the power grid was systemically attacked in many parts of the country. And when you lose electricity, you can no longer do a CT scan. You can no longer do anything. Heck, even uh, the batteries on the large ultrasounds that, that we have, those run out relatively quickly. And here you have the capacity of charging a device from a power bank. You're able to run your generator for only a few hours. And all of a sudden you're able to get a lot of diagnostic information. I think that the, the tech revolution that, that's really happened with mobile devices like this has really improved the quality of care. And for example, since the war started, we've started six brand new regional anesthesia departments. They're only the only thing that would be holding them back before is the lack of equipment. And for a very low price of a couple of thousand dollars, you now give them the equipment and all of a sudden care gets better.
In addition to it, because we're training local champions, they're able to tell other people about this equipment. So in low and middle income countries, often income isn't evenly distributed. And if you have parts of the population who can afford an iPhone, can afford a, you know, a, a nice meal, they can also afford to get themselves the sort of equipment that really makes their life easier. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, again, I'm really glad to hear about the kind of the relationship and how it's scaled. I'm curious, like, you know, just going very personal, if you don't mind, what are some of the most memorable moments of providing care on the ground that, that you can think of? And, and a follow up question to that is, you know, you have a very interesting background being American, being Ukrainian, kind of seamlessly going between the two institutions, you know, training in med school there, but then coming over and now working at Hopkins, Baltimore, where I'm very familiar with whenever there's like a war in a certain country like Syria. We worked a lot of Syrian medical students, massive brain drain, right? Tons of people leave because they want to, everyone wants a stable life. It's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. What's the situation too in, in Ukraine? This is a two-part question. Like the situation among like the Ukrainian medical population, students, nursing, et cetera. Do you feel like it's a brain drain or do you feel like more people have returned or come are, are providing care? And how how do you think the Ukrainian health system will evolve as a result of this? The Ukrainian health system is very different in its fundamental structure from the U.S. Here, we often have such a huge shortage of physicians that we're working really hard to find anybody who can fill those roles. In Ukraine, they'll often have a glut of physicians. They'll, their medical schools are very large, so they're able to process a large amount of people and, and train them reasonably well, and a lot of people leave. And that's very natural whenever you have a war. But a lot more people stay. And those are the people that'll end up building the country. They'll end up improving the healthcare system. Most of the places that we have visited did not have a shortage of physicians as much as a shortage of equipment, a shortage of training, a shortage of understanding how they can be the most efficient with the resources that they have. And those sorts of things are actually a bit easier to fix. Some of the work that we did with uh, the GAP organization at Hopkins, we were working to start the first residency program in Sierra Leone to give the country some anesthesiologists. The country has one anesthesiologist who lives there full time, and often he'll go back home to Nigeria. And there will be times that there isn't a board certified anesthesiologist in the country. So building something in that setting is so much more difficult than, for example, providing additional training to a adequate amount of specialists. I think the Ukrainian medical system will change. It has to change. I think that they will have to be more resource conscious because the war has made our COVID shortages really look like nothing. Uh, the classic example is in Ukraine, their main manufacturing of opioids is made in Kharkiv, which is in eastern Ukraine, which is a city that probably right now is actively being shelled. Your ability to run a factory and to bring all those products to uh, an entire country is very limited. So all of a sudden, opioid-free techniques become extraordinarily important. I think that the other part that, that I really appreciate is the international support. The fact that a lot of the Ukrainian hospitals can now have, for example, access to up-to-date, access to medical journals, access to podcasts that are free. It, it really takes away a lot of the, the paywalls 
And that ends up being extraordinarily important. Often people don't have the ability to look at the most recent literature and then they do their best, but without the understanding of really what, what else they can be doing to improve. Absolutely. That, that's fascinating. Thanks for explaining that. I mean, the surplus of doctors, but the lack of training or, or equipment makes a lot of sense. And really, I think our team will be glad to hear that, that that's the case because, you know, I remember March, uh, every day we had a task force about how we could help our Ukrainian learners. Fortunately, we joined Elsevier kind of four months before the war in Ukraine. So now had a lot more resources. Elsevier itself donated a million dollars to uh, UNICEF uh, Ukraine for all the, the support. And then led by our president of health markets, Jan Herzog, and our head of customer success, Lindsay Smith. We also donated tens of thousands of subscriptions to wow. you know Grey's Anatomy, Netters, Clinical Key, Osmosis, Complete Anatomy, and a whole bunch of things. So it's good to hear that the training was 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 well received. You know, uh, to the other part of the question, I know it was a long question I asked you, what are some personal stories, if you're willing to share, things that maybe come to mind from, from being on the ground there? I think one of the stories that probably touched me the most, I had a friend of mine who's a uh, Ukrainian anesthesiologist who was working in Britain uh, come back to Ukraine. And his mission was not just to work in a medical capacity, but instead to actually go and fight. Um, he was in Eastern Ukraine and he was the medic of his special forces unit. He received a shrapnel wound going through both of his arms in that process. Now, for an anesthesiologist to lose arm function, it's probably one of the most devastating things that, that can happen to us because we're so procedurally based. I heard about it and I remember reaching out to him and he picks up the phone only about 20 minutes after I called him. Uh, he says, you know, I'm really sorry, but I'm getting surgery right now. Uh, I'll have to call you back. Oh so <laughs> as soon as wow. he calls me back, we catch up and he says, you know, I now I've regained function of both my hands. So what I'm going to do is go off and inspect the hospital and see what things I can do to teach them, see where we can find some improvements. And I'll relay back some extra information so that you can be in touch with them and make that system better. I haven't seen that much real heroism. We talk about heroism in medicine. We talk about, you know, gowning up and going into the COVID pandemic, dealing with difficult situations. But even with that, uh, I think he really took it to a brand new level. So that that's been arguably one of the most touching stories for me. Um, he's actually going to be training us, uh, helping us train with some of the local physicians for difficult airways in about four days. And we're excited to report that, you know, his arms are back to normal function and he's going to be uh, helping develop the mission. That's amazing. It really puts things into perspective. And and certainly for the people in Ukraine and the people who flow, like yourself, who flow in to help uh, with the crisis, you know, it's one thing after another, COVID pandemic, and then this war, which is which is both of which seem to be endemic right now. Um, you know, tell us a bit more about Ky uh, Kybele and why you became involved with them and the work you, you're doing with them. Of course. So Kybele was initially fun, uh, founded back in 2000. They were founded when uh, one of our leaders uh, traveled to Turkey and noticed the difference in care for women during the laboring process. Um, she helped write the first uh, textbook for obstetric anesthesia in Turkish. And from there, uh, they started work, their work in Ghana. They 
did a huge project in Georgia, Armenia. We're currently active in Bolivia, the entire Balkan region, Ukraine, and Mongolia. So the way that we assess societies, um, I, I think one of the biggest telling signs of, a, of development is how well do we treat women and children? And if you think about it, uh, the birthing process is a really vulnerable process for women. So anything that we could do to make that better is really a worthwhile endeavor. From there, the opportunity to participate in trips during residency was really paramount in getting me involved and really helping expand the idea that you can be a practicing anesthesiologist and also do really helpful work worldwide. Often doctors are busy and it's really hard to consider the idea that, you know, you'll take 10, 15, 20 days off until a bit later in your career. For me, this is where it all started and where I see it continuing over the years. That's uh, that's amazing. I definitely would love to put that in the show notes and get people to look at uh, both Butterfly as well as Kybell, both very worthy organizations to partner with. And I love that you refer to, you know, the how we treat the vulnerable in our populations. Uh, we're recording this today on August 15th, which is uh, happens to be Indian Independence Day. And so this quote from Mahatma Gandhi, or ostensibly from him, um, has been circulating, which is a civilization is measured by how it treats its weakest members. And so certainly women and children, especially in lower income countries or, or countries that are war torn, like Ukraine is really critical. I know we're coming up in time and you have literally your scrubbed in right now or not scrubbed in your uh, you're in scrubs as we're recording this. So I want to be respectful to your patients and you. Um, I had two other questions. The first is, how can our audience get involved? How can they help? Uh, obviously, there was an outpouring of support in March, April, May. It seems like things have calmed down a bit since then. What do you guys need most? Overall, whatever we consider these things, it's always a marathon and not a sprint. In the initial phases, you hear about the war. You hear about horrible things that happen. And people want to donate money donate their time and come over and help out. Now, since that interest is slowly starting away, I think the most important thing is to continue to be supportive, uh, to continue to support organizations that are doing the work on the ground. And because this is going to have to continue for years, to continue to do that work in the future. Um, a lot of Ukrainians are displaced in Europe. If you're able to reach out and help them, it's very helpful for people who are, for example, on the front lines, either in the hospitals, in the trenches, or just living in Ukraine and not really able to get out. We would always appreciate donations to Kybella. And if you're so inclined, we would make sure that the funds would be used to help take care of the most vulnerable people in Ukraine. Amazing. So we'll definitely put that in the show notes as well. And and my last question for you, and this, this may actually be a personal question because... Um, as I mentioned, I'm a I'm still a medical student at Hopkins. I just have taken a leave for now nearly a decade to start and, and grow osmosis. Um, so you could actually be my attending in a couple of years for uh, for anesthesiology or OB/GYN or, or, or where whichever service we're on. What advice would you give me and other uh, healthcare professionals about meeting the challenges of the COVID pandemic, the war in Ukraine, the healthcare system in general moving forward? I think that. Uh... For many years, we've dealt with many difficulties. And I think that modeling the resilience that you see in people who went through difficult situations is one of the best ways to be prepared. That being said, nothing prepares you for every single situation. So this is where 
a strong base of knowledge and also a human side of compassion really makes people be fantastic physicians. That's a, that's incredible advice and certainly a good reminder um, for for those listening out there. Is there anything else that you'd like our audience to know about you, about uh, Butterfly, Kybel, Ukraine, or anything else that uh, you'd like to leave them with? I think to close, the most important thing to remember is these sorts of crises will happen in the world. And if you feel the call to do something, um, no matter how improbable and difficult it appears, just trying your best and working on it can have you reach incredible successes. So never sell yourself short and please continue uh, trying to work to help people. Well, Dr. Turcott, thank you so much, not only for taking the time to join us on the Raise Line podcast, but more importantly, for the work that you're doing on the ground in Ukraine and, and also even in Baltimore Hopkins, raising the line, training the next generation of healthcare providers and providing direct patient care. Sure. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. And with that, I'm Shiv Ghilani. Thanks to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Thank you.